1: Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Let me start by saying, as always, huge thanks to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash Book Shambles is where you can go to support the podcast and the Cosmic Shambles network writ large. Patreon supporters get extended episodes of Book Shambles every week, plus access to things like Tips for Existence and Uncanny Hour and behind-the-scenes stuff, all lots of extra goodies. Uh, In fact, next week we're recording a new episode of Tips for Existence with Natalie Haynes. And behind-the-scenes Patreon supporters can watch us record that live, maybe ask a couple of questions as well before it gets all cut down and edited up for the final Tips for Existence podcast. If you can't subscribe via Patreon, that's okay. This will always be free. This uh, shortened version will always be free for everyone. But you can go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review five stars or share the podcast on social media or whatever. That helps us out as well. And just a quick note on the start of this episode, uh, Josie was having some issues with her laptop. So she is absent from the first like five minutes of the show and then joins just after that. And also, since this episode is all about a music book, we have dropped in lots of little samples of some of the bands that I talked about throughout this episode. Hope you enjoy. Here's Robin.
0: Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's book Shambles. If you've seen Stuart Lee's film, King Rocker, perhaps today's episode will be of particular interest to you uh, because it is with uh, a musician and uh, an author and a campaigner and uh, now probably he's reached the age where we can call him a cultural historian. It's John Robb uh, of The Membranes and also author of Death to Trad Rock, which has an introduction by Stuart Lee as well it is uh, a look at the careers of many bands from the early to mid 80s such as uh, A Witness, uh, The June Brides, The Wedding Present, The Membranes themselves, uh, The Nightingales and many many more and uh, so we had uh, a chat all about this fantastic book which basically celebrates uh, a, a world which perhaps perhaps a lot of people don't know that much about but when you read the book you will want to listen to all the music as well it's aged very well because it's a wonderful kind of form of experimentalism but sometimes with a real sense of just being chances uh, as well going well let's just give that a go and let's just see what it sounds like um so we'll start actually just before we hear john here's uh, a little bit of one of the bands you're going to hear more about later on Hello, welcome to Josie Robbins' book Shambles. Hopefully Josie will be here eventually. We're just waiting for Josie at this very moment now. And uh, it's probably good. I know why she's avoiding it. Uh, because today's episode is two old men talking about those bands from the 80s that no one remembers and they should have done and they should have bought the records and talking about the C86 compilation tape which was or compilation vinyl which was so important to a small group of people and because we're joined by uh, John Robb who's written many things and today we're going to talk about Death to Trad Rock which has uh, come back out again now and uh, is selling very very quickly you ran out of copies didn't you John?
2: Yeah, keep uh, reprinting why suddenly everybody's interested. So maybe uh, Joe could get interested because it's not so much a niche. Well, it's still pretty niche, but probably not as niche as it was at the time. Because the kind of joke we have with this is the book seems to sell more copies than most of bands sold records. <laughs>
0: Well that's exactly what I was thinking is as I went through them and I was trying to think because all of these bands are kind of it's, it's, it's early to mid 80s very much for me I, th- I think there's about eight years difference in our age so this was a transitional mid teenage journey from you know taping the top 30 on a Sunday to beginning to hear Peel and beginning to hear these bands and um, And they are such an interesting mix because they 've got uh well, I mean one of the bands that now Stuart Lee, of course, has written the uh, the forward for the book, and King Rocker has meant that Nightingales are now in people 's uh, you know they 're aware of of Nightingales who would have been if you knew i mean what I find love about these bands is they 're all bands that if you went to see them, you would know you could talk to anyone in the crowd because you were that there was a link because you were there to see. June Bride, uh, Witness, Age of Chance, whoever it might have been.
2: Yeah, I mean, it was a community. It was, not, it was actually European wide, though. It was, I mean, when we say it was small, it was well, obviously compared to Michael Jackson, it was quite niche. But uh, in, term, in terms of music, I mean, it was there'd always be 150 people at each gig across the whole of Europe. You could go play in Greece and there would be people there. So it's, it wasn't the complete failure that we like to make out in our very British way.
0: <laughs> but it's not that it was a failure. It it feels to me. I, I remember when when Neil Innes died, Michael Palin said he once said to me when someone was going, "Oh, don't you wish you were bigger, Neil?" And he said, "No, no, two hundred people's just the right number of people to play to." And it feels that when and I was going through this the the book and looking at all those bands, and I thought, yeah, they they were never meant to be in. There's a certain size of room that any larger than that. Would somehow not be right for everything they represented in the music that they were,
2: which was the problem because everybody thought that. I mean, I don't think anybody ever got an band to be in a niche. I think this is it. Yeah.
3: Sorry to jump in. I agree totally. I I always
2: think the mainstream
3: gets what it gets, and that anything can be wildly, epically, stadiumly popular if it's given the
2: sort of chance. I think given the chance. it's been my and I argument agree. from day one. Yeah, I mean I mean I remember uh, right about Nirvana and I actually did the first interview with Nirvana at the time they were considered uh, the worst band that Sub Pop signed and <laughs> when they started getting slightly bigger played to, I seen them play to ten people in New York wow. and people the record ever going, they're gonna be really big. This could this could go as big as Sonic Youth. And that was like the, the ceiling. <laughs> of course when when, when M T V picked up in the video, the album sold eighteen million copies and I, I think uh, and, and I don't think there's such a thing as difficult music and I don't think there's such a thing as deliberately difficult music I just think there's a de- deliberately awkward media that only allows certain things through and that little thing where it's just a little funnel like that and everything's on the other side it's frustrating I don't think everybody obviously not everybody can fit on the other side but I think a, a little bit of adventure in, in the gatekeepers is always a good thing I think the public the public can listen to a lot wider uh, styles than, than those people ever give credit for you know and I've seen it up and over and over again you know people given the chance will break through but i'm not, I'm not saying every band in that book would, would have broken through but in the end the cultural impact was 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 actually a lot bigger than the record sales you know
3: yeah it would have been fun if every band in that book had broken through it would have been <laughs> exciting you know I mean, it must have been very like what was it like to interview nirvana when they were not nirvana well, yet
2: <laughs> It was actually quite a good story around that. Cause I spent four days uh, sharing a flat with them in New York City because I wrote for Sounds and nobody ever paid for hotels for Sounds, so you had to stay with the bands, which was mm-hmm. great because I was in a band, so I know the score. You know, you just you sleep. obviously on a kitchen floor and I was helping them get their gear up and down the steps of this uh, Lower East Side venue, uh, this Lower East Side flat that we are staying in. And I have got to know them really well, you know, whereas it's been a, in a hotel job and I met them for twenty minutes, Dublin to you, and I'd be gone. So. In a way, I was already used to that bucket tour thing, you know, I, I taught America the same way, the same venues they were playing, you know, and, you know, going around the crowd saying, can anybody put us up? We've only got $5 left. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, it was a glorious adventure, you know, and, uh, and I th- they're on the same thing, but they just happened to, uh, well, I mean, he did write amazing pop songs, but did, they did get the opportunity to play into a lot more people. Which is really exciting, yeah. No, I, I think a, a sprinkling of the bands in the book have gotten to the mainstream, really invigorated the mainstream, and and also widened the parameters of culture because I think you can widen them as far as you want. You know, it's mm. people, but you know, I you, you do get the odds, a pretty bizarre record getting in the charts. It's thrilling, isn't it? I mean, the last few years has actually been really good. I mean, I'm not, I know some of these groups are as obstinately awkward as a group's of the ball, but it's great to see bands like Fontaines or Idols. Or for Mods getting um, getting like top five albums, you know. You do feel like a proud grandparents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, yeah. This year, number one album for Mogwai, you know, mm. Arab Strap, Stuart Lee, and Asian Dub Foundation, and number one. And what? But what's the thing that that has changed even more? I think than before is. so many bands that I see at festivals with a huge crowd and all of those crowd will go and buy records. And you look around to where they're going to get played on the radio and even some of them don't even really get the kind of daytime on Six Music. They'll get the evening on Six Music. And that's the bit that I find most remarkable is, I remember years ago a friend of mine did a radio production course and he was in shock. He said, I found out that the number of individual songs that get played on commercial radio per month is 80 yeah it's, it's 80 different yeah. songs and that's it that's all the evening that's the whole thing
2: i think now with the internet people can bypass that i think i think the days when the radio could control the narrative or anybody could control the narrative is over and I think that's really good there's a democratization of culture so you you, you can get like really underground like drill acts or grime acts who are not going to get anywhere near the charts but have like massive masses of listeners don't get any radio play, don't get the TV, and I think it opens everything up, and, and it's, you know and that happened with, probably with the Idols to a certain extent. I mean, I don't think they would have been a natural radio band until they got big enough where they couldn't ignore them anymore. My is an a I mean, they did it by touring, I mean... I mean, there's, there's a whole, there's a bigger touring circuit. Now, we, we play bigger gigs now than ever did in, in the 80s because people will take you on tour with them. The last tour we did, just before the pandemic, we toured around Europe with Mark Lanigan, six weeks. And for Mark, it was, this is really, I thought, at first thought he he's just making up. He's going, I can't believe I've got a le- this, I've this legendary support to me. We're going, ha, 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 that's very polite of you. But then they think, oh, my God, it's, it's a bit like the Rolling Stones getting Howling Wolf to do that TV appearance, first TV appearance they did in America. And Harley Wolfe was like, he was playing in bars, but to them, he was God, you know. I'm not saying Mark or that, but, us, but to him, it was this really obscure band he'd been into when he was 15. He'd actually got, got them on tour with him and think, wow, that's, the goalposts did move, you know. There was more respect now after, after 100 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> See, the first thing I thought of there was Ian Dury working with Max Wall. And I don't mean mm. that as an insult because I'm a huge fan of Max Wall.
2: No, it's brilliant. Well, already oh, well, Mott the Hooper had done it, so don't forget that. Mott, yes, the mighty Mott the Hooper done it in 1974 when they did a, tour, a music hall-style tour together, Max yeah. Wall. What a great idea. Because, as we all know, all British pop culture harks back to music hall yeah. and the end of the pier. For Blackpool, I could totally see that. I mean, I love George Formby and I could see there's a direct correlation between that and what we do. It's not in America. America doesn't come from that. Thing and all, all, British, all great British bands, to to from the Sex Pistols, the Beatles and Stones, who even like the weird stuff that we are talking about here, ha, does have a certain element of vaudeville about it, which which it was so different. I mean, I know it was quite similar to America in a lot of ways, but the differences are really fascinating, aren't they?
3: Yeah, well, no, the, this sorry. is so tiny, but the um, in the states, my friends don't know the song. Oh, I do like to be beside the seaside. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's such a small <laughs> thing, but it means so much to me. It, but also, in terms of talking about mainstream and uh, and what's allowed in the mainstream, when you look at end of the peer entertainers, you've got proper experimental, strange, surrealist things, you know, and you've got so many, mm. uh, so much more than people
2: give credit for. Well, yeah, sorry. Oh, surrealism, such a strand of British culture, isn't it? You know, like some of our most popular comedians, obviously, the late Spike Milligan was a full-on surrealist. Uh, Ted Chipperton, who's a massive influence on Stuart Lee, one of the funniest people I've ever, ever seen in my life. And I still think he's one of the funniest people ever. Just just jokes that don't have endings, jokes that don't have punchlines, but they're, they're, they make you feel like the funniest thing ever. You know, Stuart Lee's act, and Stuart will tell you this, is basically Ted Chipperton, you know, it's but with a political a slant on it. You know, just that thing where you just did that 15-minute... Thing that goes on and on and on. Everyone's expecting a punchline, and it just stops, and it's brilliant, isn't it? And, and in a sense, it's the uh, the comedy version of the of the bands in that book. And it's interesting. Stuart Lee's first ever gig Stuart told me he went to was the Membranes playing with the X in Oxford in 1986, I think it was. You know, and when he was just a 16-year-old kid, yeah. And, it's, and and where he was doing his comedy, he was in that tradition of that of that kind of music where. There was an element of freeform to it, it was organised freeform, because I didn't realise this, but he actually works his whole set out. I thought he was a bit like, um, you know, where people could just do it for two hours and just talk and it's brilliant. Um, but he actually has it all worked out. To, the, to the, And when I interviewed him, he was so fascinated. He studied old musicals and he studied old obscure comedians to work out how they did it. But he just changed the narrative what he's talking about, because... Because he's very plugged into what's going on now that's what makes him really fascinating he's also a really brilliant comedian as well which is one of the great things the daily mail can never take that away from him he's actually really brilliant in what he does so so I, I to me he's he's he is the comedy version of our world and a lot of the world in that book we're talking about here the track rock book there was a lot of um kind of surreal uh comedy in it very dark humor very you know that that was hogarth prince you know we love those all our record sleeves are based on those and we love Spike Milligan's. We had a song called Spike Milligan's Tape Record, and... The crossover's in that, and the, that kind of flows to realism was in there but I guess the problem was we made
0: the music surreal as well <laughs> but that, that's what I love about you, you have a quote when you, when you talk to Bogshed and Bogshed I think you know would eventually become the name that people, if you're doing a parody of John Peel Bogshed with a perfect name but I love their description of they basically wanted to be Captain Beefheart if Captain Beefheart was playing at the Wheel Tappers and Shunters Club which if, if people listen <laughs> yeah. to this are, are even I barely know about that which is Wheel Tappers and Shunters was kind of up in the Granada, it was a Granada show with Burn of manning and oh what was he called um the the uh, guy colin who, crompton yeah crompton. colin crompton yeah. yeah uh and it was set in a kind of you know this idea of you're watching a working men's club and there'd be Cannon and ball and roger whittaker and all this thing. and it's just an amazing uh th- th- it's a lovely and then you listen to Bogshit and you go oh this makes sense
2: I, I always think. Um, you, I, I could swear that you know. Um, what, what's what's the comedy called? The series. Uh, uh, you know, like we have a little shop in it, and it's very grotesque.
0: Um, oh, League God, of Gentlemen.
2: Yeah, League mm. of Gentlemen. League of Gentlemen. The guys who write that, and you probably know them. I've never met them, but God, they, they must have had Bogshed records in their record collection, because the whole way that thing looks and sound sounds like they, it's like a Bogshed record made into a TV series, because Box Show had characters like Fatland Exam Failure, uh, Panties Please, all all kind of really odd, dark, very dark, uh, very Northern, like a little Northern town. They were based in Hebden Bridge, I think, My God, League of Gentlemen is bogshed. I mean, it's. it's, This is the
3: thing when you're being interviewed as a comedian, and I can imagine as a musician as well, people say, What are your influences? And they always mean in comedy. And I always used to think, Oh, well, one of the biggest things that influenced me was Jeffrey Lewis, the musician, because his ethos and his style and his. The way he uh, expresses himself creatively, and it's it's so true that people's inf- influences are so diffuse and diverse. Mm. But it's always like people don't notice if they're in a different medium. They're
2: like, oh, well, it must be descended. Yeah, to- I think people's influences are always probably out more likely to be outside what they actually mm. do. So, yeah. if I interview, I've interviewed him several times, Mick Jones from the Clash. He talks about film. You know, film is his biggest influence. Of course, he loves music but what he's really influenced by and what he's trying to capture in the songs, that sense of 3d in film, you know, and I think there's so many examples of film and, and TV crossing over to music. It's, I mean, music is, uh, uh, you know, it's, it can be a description of, of something that is filming. I mean, God, you couldn't, what about uh, Kings of Wild Frontier? Adam the not one of the greatest albums ever released. It's a film. You shut your eyes and you're in the, you're in the best pirate film or, you know, uh, or Wild West film ever got made. It's a Wild West film where the Indians, uh, the Native Americans actually won, you know, which is even better. (laughs)
3: Mm. Well, also, as well, I think when you're a musician, well, I'm imagining, you're not setting out to be like another musician. You're setting out to do the opposite. You're really trying to think, what's my sound? Who am I? And so, like, of course, it's not going to be like, well, we're really heavily influenced by this
2: band because, like, influences are something you
3: try and pretend don't exist in that regard. Well,
2: you know, some bands do. Some bands have very narrow... Uh, parameters of influence and that's, fi- that's fair enough because you, you can still make brilliant music this is what's beautiful about music actually you, you can actually not be that smart and, and only have heard two records and, and somehow synthesize something magical out of it and that's what makes it the greatest art for me that even the most stupid record could be a complete work of genius you know by accident you know whereas comedy it's it's far more difficult you know so little nuances things you have to get right to make it work Music, I do Loads of it is falling over as well, isn't it? Yeah, but falling over the right way, like normal wisdom, to, to the falling over thing, but he did it completely brilliantly. It's pretty. I mean, it's pretty. It's pretty hard to fall over straight down. Like my granddad actually taught me how to do it, but to fall on the floor and get your hands down before you break your nose is it's quite a trick, isn't it? You know, we don't have to do that in music. I mean, you could be really, you could be really stupid as a band or people in the band, but you could be really powerful. And people go, whoa, that is so powerful. And then you go meet the band and the influence the thing, you interview the thing. Oh god, they don't even know what how they're doing it. And then this is the thing. sometimes the most brilliant piece of music, but maybe people have no idea how they're doing it. so. I've interviewed Pete Hook several times, and Hooky is very articulate, very intelligent, and far more sensitive than his bluff uh, northern front will ever let you know. But but he, he's completely baffled by the bass lines that come out of his hands, you know, he has no idea where they come from, but I love that as well. But on the other hand, you, you can also um, completely synthesise a uh, piece of music from, from loads of influences as well. You know, very diverse influences. It could, it could be about a book and a book will make it into a piece of music. And I guess that's more like The Cure in a sense, isn't it? Because they're very literate in their influences and they, they, he can make a piece of music out of something he's read. Not lyrically, but actually melodically and things. So... Mm-hmm. I mean that's that's the eternal. That's why you can sit here after 50 years still talk about music because <laughs> yeah. yeah. it's so it's so mystical how it works and where it ends up in it.
0: Well, that's what I thought about reading the book. One of the things that because there's been lots of kind of indie road shows have started again, like like when, when we were young, you would see that Freddie and the Dreamers and Jerry and the Pacemakers were on tour on the Golden Oldie Road Shows, and now they do that for late 80s and early 90s indie stuff as well. But none, not really any of these bands, with the exception occasionally of the Wedding Present, who, to be fair to them, are still creating great music. I mean, in fact, that was an inter- I remember going to see them not not that long ago, and someone walking out and going, "Oh, they didn't do Kennedy," and I'm like, "I never need to hear Kennedy again. I can play it in my <laughs> head." And you know, the, the the album they did, I think it was Going Going, was it? Uh, about five or six years ago, and it was a it was a an album which. For the first six songs, you would have no idea it was a wedding present album. All of the things that people think of with a wedding present weren't there. It was a beautiful kind of soundscape being created. And that's mm-hmm. what I, I think is one of the good things, I suppose, about not getting enormous fame is that people don't do that thing, as in that sketch from the, was it, that it was Big Train, wasn't it, where Ralph McTell keeps trying to play another song and people just go, streets of London, streets of London. <laughs> uh, but you don't get trapped in that. You You have, if you keep that, because how many of the bands that you interviewed are still going in some form?
2: I, I reckon probably about half of them would still be going in some form. So, um, Wedding President, which Wedding Present is, is kind of a, it's interesting to Wedding President because he's a solo singer songwriter who, and he's a proper songwriter, but for some reason he got intrigued by this kind of weird noisy scene via John Peel, via punk rock. So he kind of sets his, um, his kind of classic songwriting in very noisy discordant music which is uh so he's coming at it from a different angle but i, I did it very well as well uh Nightingales obviously still going we're, we're still going um there'll be about two or three others that'll be going in some kind of form Um yeah but most of the others probably went, went off and got proper jobs but i think it, to, to have that one hit though is is not really a curse is it because I, I think in it, you go see lots of bands from a long time ago bands have actually learned how to be very good now, you know, so you go see someone like the Stranglers, and it's only one original member on the next tour, sadly. But it will they will be fantastic, They're guaranteed to sound great, play all the songs that you love when you're a kid in a brilliant way, and play new material, which is almost as good as the old stuff. So I think um I remember when the Velvet Underground reformed and it wasn't very good, was it? I don't think anybody knew how to reform then. But people now go, look, you don't just play the music, you have to you have to remember how the music was played in the first place, the same attitude. And I guess the scene that we're talking about in this book is um part of it is you 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 have to it has to be in the spirit of what it was. So it's um so like for instance, if we play live gig, we only play one old song, but we change it every time we play it. We we kinda of half freeform it. So it's always different. And we we we'll always we sometimes we'll work a song out, a new song, on the sound check, and put it in the set because I like the edginess of it. But we can get away with that because like you say, we're not we're not stuck with loads of hits and things, but <laughs> But, but, but the spirit of that kind of music was to be like that. It should be always be on the cusp, taking a risk. It should always be the challenge. It was meant to be challenging music and it's meant to be made the inspiration of the moment had to be in that music. It, that doesn't make it better than uh, go see a pop show where you see somebody like Kylie playing 20 hits in a row. It's just a different way of articulating music. Both are valid.
0: Who surprises you most in terms of because age of chance i remember when when that and then they did the you know the the, the cover of, of kiss and everything and 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 for certainly that was one of the bands when i was 15ish that felt you know the imprint of the M- nme and all of the other you know papers on them at that point and the, and i think they had some quite big tv shows and they probably ended up on something like jonathan ross in the early days and i thought they would you know but they they kept going for quite a while didn't they but they again they didn't quite who is the band that you go now they they really should have got... They they had the pop hits, they had everything.
2: Well, ironically, Age of Chance, the first two singles, to me, were actually better pop than when they actually tried to do it properly. Although their version of Kiss was great, but Motor City is an amazing pop record, you know, and it's it sounds great, and they, they recorded that themselves, you know. And...
0: In Motor City you're busy having fun In Motor City
2: should have been a, uh, a classic, you know, of all that kind of scene, that should have been the big puppet and things, you know, and this, but I, I you know, I guess my ears are quite stretched. So to me, a lot of those bands don't sound that weird. And well, we could never understand why people thought we were willfully obscure. You know, I, I didn't find what we would, I mean, obviously, if, if you only listen to like a pretty style of music, it might be difficult, but I thought, we could never understand why we we're an underground bands. But I think most bands are like that, you know, mm. you, you think, no, like I was saying initially, you don't you don't spend a year in a rehearsal room writing all this stuff, just go out and play to your mates. You know, people it's not like you it's not like you want to be a pop star or whatever. You just you think where where, where is everybody? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, why why aren't there a thousand people at each gig then then we can actually do the whole thing? Because uh, 'cause you're always ambitious to do more. Like these days we, we have a twenty piece choir at some gigs. Try doing that. Try getting mm-hmm. a twenty piece choir out on tour with about on about five hundred quid a night. You know, it's <laughs> but but it has to be what's in your head. You know, if that's in my head, I have to go and do it. And if you get an idea, you have to finish it off. And so and it was like that then we, we thought, well, yeah, it's got to be, it's got to be pretty loud and, and noisy. Uh, but, you know, Spider-Man's Telecorder, which is our best known song of that period, uh, was proven to be a hit in the end because you mentioned Kennedy by The Wedding Present. It's virtually the same song, so. <laughs> I mean Dave, David Gedge will admit that nowadays. If you listen to them back to back, you go, whoa, that's I mean, Nice of them to you know, do
3: that for you. Give it give it another spin. <laughs> I said, I knew it was a hit.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I and mean, we got to my number 12, didn't it? It was like, the funny thing was that when we start playing that song around that time, people said, Oh, you've you take you've that from the wedding press, Ooh. you go, no. Well, oh, the other thing we always That'd make say,
3: me mad, that word. Oh, That'd make me furious.
2: Yeah, well, it's the other way around. And people always said, oh, you've just copied American bands. We go, no, look at the dates on the records. Mm. We didn't copy Big Black or Sonny Youth. We were actually going before them. But you can't believe because we're from Blackpool. We, I mean, we, we were on a back foot from day one. It's not yeah. New York or Berlin, is it? It's it's Blackpool, which I love. I'm, I really love coming from Blackpool. But it's um, it doesn't make you look like some emaciated, cool like a big city kind of person, sure. you know, fr- from the front line of New York City, like like Swans or Sonic Youth, where, you know, like when you read Swans' story, you know, and he's living in the rehearsal room on his Avenue B, and it, was, it was raw and intense and all that. But I didn't, I mean, I, I think they're an amazing band. And I think, and, and again, there's, there's about, I, I think they're parallel. I, I find there's a lot of commonality with them, but they've actually ended up being a really big band now. But But it was easier it's an easier sell than coming from Blackpool. Every single review or interview will go on about uh, Blackpool Tower or, um, you know, Candy Floss and stuff like that. And we go, yeah, but I I love Blackpool Tower. It's an amazingly ridiculous conceit to build a version of Eiffel Tower three years after the proper one was built in your hometown, but it doesn't really relate to our music,
0: you know <laughs> I'll tell you what would have done though, I'm very disappointed to find out that the Eric Von Daniken theme is now not going to happen for that Blackpool uh, leisure complex, do you know about this one?
2: Yeah, I saw that was going to happen and I was interested in that because when I was a kid I read all his books and the first one was pretty convincing, but as you went along you could think you just start to make bits of this up now, wouldn't he? <laughs>
0: Well, there's a whole area, and it's such an interesting... I mean, because he definitely just made it up, and this is Eric von Daniken. Is, um, uh, it, it was basically about how aliens have come and built all of the ancient civilizations, and, and underneath it, it has a kind of what turns out to be something slightly racist about it as well. Mm. Um, it's, it's quite disconcerting. But there's loads of that at that time, like Carlos Castaneda, you know, the guy who mm. the teachings are on, and it turns out... Do you know about this guy, Josie? He he was the, Carlos Castaneda was he was meant to be an anthropologist who had gone off and he had met this kind of ancient shaman wise man and he'd done this incredible thing and he'd slept in the desert and he'd been shown how you sew the eyelids of a chameleon shut with a thorn bush and all that and and he was really lauded. And in an intellectual... and then someone read it and went, you do know all these things don't happen. You do know this is a load of rubbish. And yet it's now gone from being, oh, it is a load of rubbish. But do you know what? The very nature of the myth, even if it's not true, means it's still very. So it's just this incredible, that whole time of weird selling myth as truth. Then it turns out it was all made up anyway. And then somehow still going, oh, still relevant. And they're still all bloody in print as well. <laughs> well, in a way they're precursors to the internet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's even more stuff
2: out there which we could believe that's true. The one the one thing about Danikin though is even though he the alien thing, I'm not having that because they, there's no way uh, aliens have ever come to Earth. I and mean, there are aliens out there, the universe is full of life, f- full of far more advanced civilizations than we got. So sure. why would they come why would they come here? I mean, that would be like me tonight coming into your back garden and finding a blade of grass and being fascinated with it. It just isn't going to happen. You know, it's it's too far and it's utterly pointless. They've got bigger fish to fry out there. Uh, but he did pinpoint these really fascinating um, structures in, you know, like the is it the Atacama lines in South America and, and the way that a lot of these pyramids were, were incredible to build. But there's no reason why I know we could build them. You know the South American pyramids you talk about, yeah. Uh, because people then, the same as we are now, we had well, the same brain capacity. They weren't, they weren't backwards people because it was ten thousand years ago. It was just us, you know. Uh, yeah. and, but sometimes, I mean, obviously it was amazing in South America they could build all the stuff but didn't have. Didn't invent a wheel. Isn't that amazing? You know, it just shows that you don't invent everything all at once. You can go really far in one direction and be really stuck back in another. And it's interesting bringing bring all this up because this is all part of the backdrop to the bands in the book. All those bands, this is a conversation you would have about this kind of stuff. It was, it was never, it was, it was not like rock, I mean, of course, there's a rock and roll element to it, but it wasn't that kind of mundane, um, you know, uh, rock and roll lifestyle stuff. It would be like really mad, Conversations about deep space and aliens and <laughs> <laughs> weird civilizations, and then I and then you on the way from one gig to another, you would stop and go bird spotting or something. It was it was that thing of being interested in everything and somehow squash it into your music.
0: <laughs> but that's what I think is really interesting about, in particular, the kind of the new wave scene, the early synth scene, all the bands is there's just books everywhere there's ideas as you said there's so many ideas And, and it does feel to me and this might just be being old even though there are lots of great bands and there are you know idols are a good example of people who are doing something really but it doesn't feel quite as omnipresent. That sense that everyone's got a book in their overcoat. You know what I mean? And they're 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 pulling it out And and I and I know that might be because the internet's been used or whatever. But I love all of those ideas. Lots of bands that I just thought were pop bands, and then you find out where they got their name from, and 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 where, what certain songs that just seemed like a love song were actually about, and what you know Herman Hess novel or whatever that yeah, was taken yeah, from. Yeah.
2: I, I think he's probably still there, but I think there's more distractions now because of the internet. There's more stuff to read. So maybe some of the ideas will come via the internet. So maybe uh, somebody will read a tweet about Herb and Hess and go, oh, that's an interesting idea, make a song out of it. So so, so maybe the ideas is out there, but not... Uh, well, they still have the depth to them because you're still creating your own depth to it. But maybe people don't have time to read because there's so many other... I mean, then, in, in the 70s and 80s, I mean, don't forget the telly used to end at 11 o'clock and the three channels before... And Channel 4 was a revolution. Whoa, it was four channels. So there's plenty of time to read then. And, and, and so book book sales are up, aren't they? So pe- there are a lot of people reading. I just think, but uh, many people read chunks, little micro chunks of things. You know, you have you have ten books on the go, and some stuff going on, on your phone, and you're reading stuff on the internet. So probably the volume of words that people are digesting is higher than it's ever been before. But like music, you know, more people listen to more music, diverse music than ever before because mm-hmm. of streaming. But there's there's no central focal point. It just keeps shifting about. You know, so it's not. There's not one dominant book or ten dominant books that are mm. where the go-to for bound to get ideas from. They're, they're, they're getting bombarded in all different directions by ideas, it's like getting bombarded, bombarded by bits of dark matter. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and it's so exciting when you find someone you think wow this sound wow they're unique and then it's like you pull a string you're like no there's 50 bands like this at the moment and i didn't know any of them and and i love finding that sort of thing out like realizing the lack of knowledge i have in certain areas or certain places or you know yeah it's like if you stay curious you will never ever run out of things to find also you find all the bands that
0: you loved you find out who they were nicking off as well so many yes. bands that i loved in the 80s and then and i mean that in a good way as no, well no, that whole genius changed my life. thing is you start yeah. to go oh, or even that that horror where you go i never knew that was a cover you know, that, when, when, <laughs> when that <laughs> yeah, yeah. the fall album before the fall that that compilation of all those bands that you know the original band that did mr pharmacist and all that stuff and it was just like it, it was a and then that leads you back and back and back and then still takes you forward as well
2: but it's completely brilliant because it shows that. Yeah, I mean, creating the melody on the words, of course, it's amazing. But sometimes it's just the way something is played can make the difference, you know. So sometimes a cover could be better than the original, you know, because or maybe it's more in tune with a way you listen to music personally, you know. I, I I don't think anything has to be totally original to be brilliant either. It could just be brilliant, you know. It could be a feel, the vibration of it, or emotion that's in there and it doesn't matter if it's if it's a lift, you know, I think there's too much uh, people are too bothered about that. I mean, yeah, I mean I talk again in context of this book, I mean it probably most bands of that book were bending over backwards to call up with something that's completely original. You know, if anything remotely sounded like something you would never heard before, you just throw it out and try and make something else up. Probably to the detriment because he ended up with something that it was like it's like trying to use language with, with completely made up letters in it. <laughs> people go yeah, I, I like the spirit of that, but I can't understand the word of it. It's, it's all like gobbledygook. And... <laughs> but, but, no, so, so sometimes um, it's good to use the road that's already sideposted, but you make your version of it, you know, find your own direction from it. Because, I mean, Nirvana were incredibly original, but as soon as you started singing, you you felt it. It felt like something very powerful that's going on there, very spiritual and, and emotional, you know.
0: Mm. It's weird because I remember first hearing Smells Like Teen Spirit, having listened and, you know, had bleach and stuff like that. And I remember thinking, and me and my two mates, who both had the first album, went, God, this just sounds like a Pixies song. This is a bit weird. And now it doesn't sound like a Pixies song. But when we first got that, when we went down so long ago, it was Woolworths, you know, and we played it.
2: Well, it's nicked off Boston, isn't it, more than a feeling? (laughs) <laughs> which is which is really funny it's because a great I think, song. You, know, you know well it's a great riff, isn't it? <laughs> but I think you know when when music writers because they have very cool record collections always impose their very cool record collections on bands. But because I'm in both camps because I write about music and I play music, I know mm. that most musicians don't listen to cool records because they just listen to anything that kind of intrigues them. They've listened to it. So I mean, yeah, fair enough. Nirvana were influenced by Pixies, but they could just as easily. Uh, have no interest in Pixies at all, you know, and their record. And because uh, the song did come from Boston, and most people go, "Oh no, that's appalling! How could they copy that?" It's, you know, that the idea of guilty pleasures, which is ridiculous idea, I mean, funny but ridiculous, doesn't exist in music musician world. Musicians will listen to a piece of music that could be ostensibly totally uncool, whatever that means, but but love the bassline and go no, "I'm going to nick that line because no no one knows where that came from," <laughs> and there, there's no there's no. Lower, high cool, you know, when, when people create music, you know, the stuff that people talk about in music position world is completely different. And, and I think the trouble is the, the story of music has got narrowed down more and more narrow the way it's told. And there's only certain bands you commit to liking and only certain bands who, you know, the three great influences or whatever, nothing else is influential, it's not like that at all. You know, once you're in a rehearsal room, it's, it's pretty chaotic, the music taste.
0: <laughs> I mean, do you find that It seems to me that there's, in in terms of kind of the dogmatism of which bands you're allowed to be into. Uh, doesn't really exist now because I think in the eighties and in the seventies there mm-hmm. were specific, you know. I mean, in fact, there was quite a bit in the press the other day about, you know, the Cure versus the Smiths and these other kind of preposterous things. But there was, there was this kind of, you know, were you a goth? Were you into, you know, or, or was it kind of Midlands, you know, metal? Or what was your thing? And now it's a lot more eclectic, I think.
2: Yeah, but it's it's kind of weird. It's interesting because music taste is really eclectic, but there's still. People, older people say there's no youth tribes anymore, but there is, they're just different ones. But music doesn't define the tribe as much. So, you will on Instagram, you'll get goth influencers who don't listen to music, but they like the style and the clothes and the the aura of it, the background of it. And it does make for great Instagram photos. But they might, they might, the music they may like may be uh modern electronic dance music, which is not even dark, you know, it's just the light. Like, they like the outfits, and the and it's mm. the music's got detached from the cult from the surrounding culture, which I think is cool. It's interesting because every generation should have its own rules of culture anyway. Why should people say, "Oh, well, why don't they do like we did?" Well, well you didn't do what your mom and dad did. Why? Mm. Why should they? Why should they relate to those kind of ways? And it wasn't much fun in 1980 when there was like ten youth tribes all fighting each other, We're having proper fights. You know, you got beaten up for a certain lucky thing. Well, what's that about? You know, what's it going to do with you? What pair of socks have got on? You know, and it's. Um, so, I mean, but that creativity is still there, and you only have to walk down a street and you can see all the different styles are out there. There's, you know, indie kids, whatever, there's metal kids, the metal subdivides into loads of other little mm-hmm. types of metal, different genres of metal. And, you know, down said to wear slightly different clothes. It's there. The codes of us, codes, you don't get the codes because you're older. You don't know that, you know, uh, wearing that pe- black train shoes or white train shoes is a very big deal if you're into hip hop or whatever, you know. and... I mean, you know, you see kids into drill have got their own look. You know, it's all it's all different looks and styles. I mean, isn't that one of the great things that, uh, for, for, especially in Britain, that we were drivers in street fashion? You know, we still are. You know, kids always dress sharp in Britain, and they always have their own styles, which are beyond anything dictated to them by the mainstream. They make their own cultures up, and every city has a different look as well. So if I go to Brighton, people wear different clothes than they do in Manchester which I think is quite quite interesting in times of the internet when everybody gets the same ideas all at the same time, but they still filter them to their own version of them. You know, kids in Liverpool dress different from kids in Manchester. It's only 30 miles.
3: (laughs) I feel like so much of it is linked in with being skint and just resourceful as as well, like... I remember, like, when me and my friends were dressing as teenagers, like, the places we would go would be charity shops or peacocks or, like, you know, it would be really odd combinations of things. None of it was to do with style or anything like that. It was to do with, like, what can I find to put together here
2: <laughs> that would be good. But you'd reappropriate it into mm. a style. Yeah, so mm. it would be a style. It would be incredibly oh, stylish. Totally. But it wouldn't be to do with fashion is what I mean. Or, or oh, yeah, yeah, anything not, like yeah. that. Yeah, it wasn't like a, a Milan catwalk yeah. thing, was it? It's, it was, it's funny because I was reading about the football the other day and they were going about, you know, the Italians are incredibly stylish and we're not. And I was thinking, no, that's not right at all. You know, the, the British are really stylish on their own so terms. Not, I'm not talking about people, you know, just a football top and shorts on, which is, again, it's another street style in a sense. But that mod dandy culture thing, that dressing up thing, It's all over Britain, you know, you see all the time people are really meticulous in their separate different little styles, you know, which interestingly in in Italy, they're not, you know, Italy is jeans and a T-shirt, you know, mostly just because a few people in Milan wear a hundred thousand quid suits doesn't mean the whole country is, you know.
0: Mm (laughs) <laughs> I know one more thing just to mention, actually, which I was just thinking when you were talking about the uh, kind of how people go, oh, we well, young people don't do this or that anymore. And it does seem to me there is a problem with the fact that a lot of people of our generation have not realised that they are now middle aged and they don't understand young people. And so they are actually getting it. You know, you see a lot of that kind of, you know, the, 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 the anti-woke tedium that goes on and I think all of this is just a different way of what for another generation was what's this awful racket that you're playing and now totally, it's, it's yeah
2: just... I have this argument all the time with people you know they go there's nothing new anymore it's just not very good you go well that's well yeah you don't get it because it's new they go no it's not because it's new it's just rubbish there's going to be caught in the words what do you mean caught in the words you just that's what your mum that's about your punk records you know and it's Everyone gets really set in their own little world. So which which is what what they should say is, I oh, love that stuff I grew up with. I don't really get what's going on nowadays, but they have their own thing. Good on them. Well being a perfect answer, no one ex- no one's expecting you to, c- to continue to be into it. But um, but given the courtesy of don't be so, so sodding patronizing about it all the time, you know. The culture didn't stop just because you got to 27, you know, people's dress codes didn't sh- uh, didn't stay just like yours. You know, it'd be, it'd be ridiculous. So we can imagine in the, in the punk era, which which you just missed because you're younger than me, you, but the idea that uh, 60-year-olds were telling you what to listen to would be completely laughable. You know, like, oh, they're experts of pop culture all of a sudden, are they? I mean, these people weren't even around for the Beatles or Elvis, you know, so <laughs> the timelines are massive, aren't they? But if they, if they turned up and they got it, or they said, look, it's not for me, but I respect, I it's great that you're doing it, those are two really valid answers. And there's... there's you know the flip side of that coin is there's absolutely nothing wrong. In fact, it's totally cool. If you meet people even older than I am who are totally turned by culture, uh, the wonderful Bruce Mitchell in Manchester, who's eighty two now, who's a drummer in the Derrity Column. He's, you speak to Bruce, and he's telling you about the new bands, and he knows what's good, and he'll tell you about the pre rock and roll world of Manchester trad jazz and the, and the pubs he went in. It's like what a fascinating character. But he's 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 a hipster, the original meaning term. He's always hip. And that's what hipster originally meant, isn't it? See, hipster's another sneer word, isn't it? Because hipster is just uh, shorthand for young people with funny haircuts, you know, But like we all were. We're younger, probably like we are now as we're older. But, you know, it's just people go, oh, look at their stupid clothes. Uh, yes, that's what's meant to be going on here. They're not meant to be dressing like you. They're just, that's their codes. And if they want to, like, you know, people slagged off idols, go look at their trousers, a half mask. Well, yeah, but that's their, that's their style. they've worked it out absolutely perfectly. They look... They walk in a room and you think, yep, they're up to something. You know, they've got something going <laughs> on, you know, and that's all the best bands are like that, aren't they? It's like a, it's like a 3D cartoon, isn't it? It's, uh, you just know they've got something and it's it's the clothes, the music, the, actually the style, the way they walk. this going stage plug-in and the sound they make is exactly what you knew it was going to be, just looking at them. I knew what punk bands sounded like in 1976 and looking at the pictures in the music papers because you couldn't hear the records. I thought, oh God, I know this is going to sound amazing. It's going to be really linear and fast. you could just imagine it in your head. and I like that. I love that idea.
0: Yeah. Death to Trad Rock rock is fantastic because also if you if you weren't around at the time, I really promise you you will love listening to these bands because they've aged very well. I, I, I think because they're not because they weren't fashionable and because the, the synths they are using, if they are ever using them are frankly distorted in various different ways, <laughs> it still works in 2021.
2: I love it if people read the book and listen to the music as they're reading the chapter. It's all different. Each band gets its own chapter. I think, it, and I've told people to do this, but just listen to the music. is online. You can listen to it. While you're reading the chapter, because it really does give you the full experience.
0: Yeah. yeah. No, it was a joy. I did, I did that listening to it. Uh, yeah, fantastic. Uh, Cherry Red Books, uh, Death to Trad Rock. Thank you so much, John.
2: It's nice to
3: talk to you. See you later.
2: Thank you
0: thank you very much for listening thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton uh, thank you to everyone who supports us via Patreon that's how we're able to keep making these things uh, as, you, as you will see things are still not really quite opening up in uh, in the live world uh, fortunately I'm beginning to do some gigs when I'm not back in uh, isolation but if you can support us uh, that is fantastic it's patreon.com slash bookshambles and that will allow you to also hear longer episodes of bookshambles and we will also have some more uh, episodes of book shambles which you can actually watch um being recorded and things like that but uh, your support if you are able to support us is uh, um both something we're very grateful for and something that we need a little bit as well so thank you very much and it also means we don't do loads and loads of plug-in all the time and you don't have to hear adverts and you don't have to hear us pretending to like a bank or something like that thank you this podcast is part of the cosmic shambles network Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.